Bullshit is everywhere. Bullshit. Bullshit is rampant. Total fucking bullshit. Bullshit. This makes no fucking sense. It's just bullshit. Fuck. Bullshit is bullshit. I want you to get up right now and go to the window, open it, and stick your head out and yell, I'm as bad as hell, and I'm not going to take this anymore. Welcome back to the Bullshit Filter. My name is Cameron Riley. With me, as always, is my hetero man-wife, Ray Harris Jr. Buddy, um, you know, I think we should start by... This is the first uh, Bullshit Filter, the news show we've done in 2019. And um, we did announce towards the end of last year that we are thinking about discontinuing the bullshit filter mini series that we've been doing um and and of course all of our subscribers said no we love it it's the best and um so i said well you know upgrade your accounts and they said okay we will um don't think any of them have done that yet but it's because i haven't reminded them but um just to give you an update we don't really know what we're doing yet over christmas we thought about it a bit we haven't come to a conclusion we might do another series or two we might yeah. um, just, but at least we're going to keep doing the news show each week. So you have that right. while while we think about whether we should do another okay. history series or we'll keep doing this series. We've been tossing around ideas for new history series like the history of the American Revolution, the history of the CIA, the history of the mob. Um, what are, what are, what are, <laughs> <laughs> what are other ideas that we've had? Can you remember? Um, um, the Roth Rothschilds. The Rothschilds, yeah. The history Roth, of the Rothschilds yeah. family. That would be that would be cool. Yeah. yeah, I read a book on them some years ago. Well, many many years ago, and it was fascinating. Mm-hmm. Um, Rothschilds, the Morgans, maybe the bankers. You know, the bankers Ooh. that rule the world. Yeah, um, the Mormons, John Smith, whatever his name is. Joseph Smith. Yeah, I can't. Joseph Smith. I can't, can't. do that. I was thinking about that oh. at the gym yesterday. I can't oh, do I that do. until my mother-in-law. Uh, dies. Um, right. Uh, do you need me to do something? Wink, oh, wink. no, dude. <laughs> I'm sorry. Uh, love, Did love, love my mother in law. She's sweet. I'm sorry. She's lovely. Okay. She's I- sweet. But, um, or at least she's she's got Alzheimer's. So until she gets to a point where she, you know, I would hate. I don't want to hurt her feelings by uh, telling no. that story. No. Cause, but cause yes. Not hurting people's feelings is very important to you. <laughs> It is not deliberately. Like if people get hurt by collateral damage, then uh, you know. Anyway, so that's what's going on. Stick with us, folks, um, subscribers. We're going to do something. uh, We'll we'll figure it out in the next week or two. Let's get on with the news stories. Uh, So, if you're new to this show, we grab a handful of news stories each week that we think deserve more. Uh, discussion and awareness, and, and we just kind of walk through them, try and break them down, and try and sniff out the bullshit if there is some in yeah. there, and and analyze it a little bit. That's all we do. Um, the first thing I wanted to talk about, Ray, is this story. I don't know if you've seen this, but um, there is some some evidence that the Chinese Navy have fitted one of their ships with an electromagnetic railgun. Ooh, okay. Uh, now, 
what is an electromagnetic railgun, I hear you ask? Um, I, I am asking. Mm, I heard you ask that yeah. in my brain. Um, yeah. So this is a new one, one of a new generation of weapons that um, the world's advanced militaries have been trying to figure out how to make it uh, practical for, for quite some time. It's right. it's one of these weapons they call a super weapon because if it's one thing the world needs right now, Ray, yeah. it's it's more super weapons. Um, yes. You know the fact that there are seven or eight thousand active nuclear warheads on the planet, each yeah. one of which probably has a thousand times the uh, capability of the bombs that were dropped on. Hiroshima and Nagasaki by America mm-hmm. in 1945 is not enough. We need more. No. We need more weapons. <laughs> uh, we cowbell. Yeah. Right. Um, so this is yeah. a kind of what they call a super weapon. So uh, what's special about this is it, it gets rid of conventional explosives in the firing of the projectile, the, the missile, and instead uses an electromagnetic circuit to launch uh, a projectile that doesn't have any explosives in it. So typically, uh, you, f- you fire a missile. I mean, uh, as you know, I'm one of the world's leading experts. Uh, nobody knows more about uh, nobody knows more about missiles than I do, Ray. Um, nobody. And. Uh, the way the, the way you fire a missile is you have it's it's a rocket basically you have propellant at the at the right. at, at the base of it you fire that propellant and it explodes and it shoots it off in a direction and then when it hits its target sometimes there's a payload in it and it blows up sometimes it just slams into it and leaves a big hole right depends on the kind right. of projectile. Very uh, well done. Well, the things with ele- thank you. Um, I am one of the world. Nobody knows more about these things than me, Ray. Um, w- one of the ways that this these railguns work is um, there, there's no explosive payload in them. They're just a piece of metal uh, shaped right. shaped like a missile, and they just uh, they, they don't need any propellant in them because they're using electromagnetic force magnets, basically, just to fire them really, really fast. And this is the thing about them is they are really, really fast. They can shoot projectiles two and a half to three kilometers per second up to distances of up to 200 kilometers. Right. Uh, Which is, what, about 300 miles, I guess. Is that about right? 0.6 kilometers to a mile, or is it 0.6 miles to a... kilometers to a mile, I think. (laughs) Is that right? Yeah. You don't know. You don't understand kilometers. You're an American. (laughs) The point is they can shoot very far, very fast, and they shoot so fast it cannot be intercepted. And because of this, it doesn't use explosives. It's probably smaller or cheaper, and they could probably at some point, once they perfect it, mass produce these things. And you won't – there's – for right now, there will – and for many years, there will be no countermeasure against this. Well, yeah, and I think the uh, point of them is that they're s- sort of safer. Uh, if you have a if you have a ship full of conventional 
missiles. There's a lot of things that can go boom on the ship. Don't These <laughs> things don't have anything that can go boom. I, stop me if I'm losing you here. This is technical talk that those of us who know more about this than anybody yeah. um, right. quite often use. Things that go boom. Boom. Um, Things that make you go boom. boom. Things that make you go ah. boom, boom, boom. Um, so the way it works is it, it it has a pair of rails. Did you watch any of the videos on this in prep for today? Yes. Fascinating, Pretty right? Scary. Yes. yes, scary, fascinating. So they have a pair of uh, rails that um, have an electromagnetic current running through it. Then the projectile is also made out of uh, material that is uh, conductive, conductive metal. And they basically run an electromagnetic charge through the rails and, and it basically just fires this thing. It's like rolling uh, a piece of metal down a magnet, but um, obviously a lot faster. Now, I, I, I see that uh, I, traditional projectiles can travel at a velocity of about two kilometers per second. These can do two and a half to three and maybe even beyond three kilometers a second. So they're 50% faster mm-hmm. than your traditional explosive-powered military guns. And and as I said, they don't have a payload in them, so basically they just have a high kinetic energy, and they just slam into a ship. Right. Let's say you're you've got one of these things on a ship, you're firing at an enemy ship. These things just you know they just they fly super 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 fast, hard to intercept, and they slam into uh, your your ship and just whack a big hole in it. They they blast through steel like a hot knife through butter based on the videos that I've seen. But the Americans have well, been testing these things for years and have had trouble. When the Americans uh, have been testing them, yeah. they've been melting. Uh, now, oh. I, uh, you know, I, I know more about these things than pretty much anybody, Ray, and what, what, one of the things you may not realize being uh, 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 just an amateur is that right. when your guns melt, generally mm-hmm. it's a bad thing. Just keep bad. that in mind. Yeah, things that go right, boom, guns melt bad. Guns melt bad. That's <laughs> what you need to know. <laughs> Thank you for breaking it down for me. That's I appreciate right. it. That's why I'm here. Yeah, 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 yeah. Um, just, just a couple of things. Um, as someone who has read several Wikipedia historical web pages in the past, um, history has taught me that one, generally, war is more likely when one side. Um, of a two-side war, obviously, um, has a massive technical or technological advantage. And this would certainly count as that if this is something they can get working. Two, you can have incredible deadly weapons. And like you were saying a minute ago, we've had um, atomic weapons since 1945. Um, In some ways, that doesn't matter. This is just the latest generation of a new weapon. What really matters is the politics around or between the two countries that may or may not come to war. But again, that doesn't make me feel any better because of what's going on with uh, Trump and the trade wars and the tensions that where he's always uh, trashing people, even our allies. And so he's certainly he's certainly being hard on China. I'm not saying that China doesn't deserve this for some of their practices. But the point is, you can have these incredible uh, weapons. But as long as two sides are still treating each other with dignity and respect, generally, you're going to be safe. But as we're see as we're seeing now that's not really the case so that kind of makes me nervous and i've only got two words for you as dr malcolm davis a senior analyst at the australian strategic policy institute said to abc 
The technology would usher in a hemispheric battle space. I've got two words for you. I'm quoting my president, Space Force. He was right. We were all wrong. This is heading to Space Force. Does Space Force have a theme song yet? That's all I want to know. I want to know what the theme song is. Let me, space let me Force. Get on my nothing but yeah, Space yeah. Force. Yeah. So, no, just, just, I mean, this is incredible. And that they are so far ahead of us. But then again, they've been making electronics that the entire world, certainly America, with our obsession with technology, has been buying. They've made a lot of money. And now we can see where they've been putting some of that money. Well, as I said before, when uh, in America's um, uh, experiments to build one of these electromagnetic mm-hmm. railguns, they have tend to melt. So America's actually been pulling away from it for the last few years uh. and putting their efforts into something called HPVs, um, the human papillomavirus. Um, they're basically trying to uh, get people covered in warts. No, sorry, uh, wrong <laughs> an acronym. It's an HVP. <laughs> The hypervelocity projectiles, um, mm-hmm. which are just as fast as these uh, rail guns, but uh, a little bit cheaper because you don't have to retrofit a ship with this massive uh, power bank. So the problem with the 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 electromagnetic rail gun is apparently to fire one of these thing one of these things takes a, enough power, the equivalent amount of power that it would take to power a reasonably sized neighborhood if not more so you you need to retrofit your battleships with right you know basically a a a massive amount of of energy to fire these things um which uh, which you know changes the dynamics of the ship and you have to figure out where you're going to put it and all of this kind of stuff um and and my point here was going to be that we don't know yet whether or not the Chinese have got one of these things working um, or sure. if they're just uh, throwing it out there. Maybe it's just uh, it's for the look, it's for the optics of it. We know right. about this because a Chinese uh, military uh, blogger got a sneak photo of this and put it out there is the official story. Um, I think the Chinese military leaked it to him so he could leak it um, because in their ongoing mm-hmm. trade war negotiations with your country, never exactly. hurts to make it look like they have some form of new military superiority. It's basically, this is uh, gunboat diplomacy. Um, oh, really? You, you, you want to talk about uh, yeah. tariffs? Uh, have a look at our new yeah. gun. Um, exactly. And it's kind of crazy. Like, on one hand, I think, well, there's no way China and America are actually going to move to a hot war. That's ridiculous, um, right. but you know, I guess you never know, man. People never th- didn't think the world was going to end up in a war when Franz Ferdinand yeah. was killed either a little over a century ago. So you never know. Yeah. I mean, I, I find it hard to believe, but you never know. You're right, but 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 you've got then you've got wild cards like the Taiwanese independence. China doesn't want to let them go. They want to go. We're backing uh, Taiwan. So the whole thing. I mean, you're right. I mean, it makes absolutely no sense to have a war because if we do have a war, it is going to be horrendous. But when has that ever stopped humans? Um, So anything is possible. But we haven't had 
as far as I can think right now, off the top of my head, we haven't had two nuclear powers engage each other in a hot war since right. ever, right? Yeah, yeah. We have not but that had... Does, mm. But that doesn't mean it will never happen just because it hasn't happened yet. I mean, I mean, you're absolutely right. It has, it has never happened, but you can't just put that out there and say, and then therefore it will never happen. I mean... I'm not saying it's going to happen, but there's always a first time for everything. Yeah, but the reason it hasn't happened is because of mutually assured destruction. And that's part of the reason Trump wants a space force, I guess, is to... uh, Well, that's part of it. I mean, part of the rationale is, you know, we need to be able to shoot down their nuclear missiles before they can shoot down our nuclear missiles. But of course, as you and I have talked uh, about a lot on our shows over the years, what's really driving stuff like this uh, at the end of the day is the military industrial complex. Yeah, economics, baby. The U.S. economy, um, and I I can't speak for the Chinese economy, but I'm I'm sure there are lots of similarities, is driven in a large part by military spending. Um, Mm -hmm. You know, China's a little bit different because of it's a quasi-on-paper communist country with a Politburo that can make decisions about where money gets spent and how the economy runs. In the US, it's a little bit more complicated, but basically they want to take huge amounts of money from public funds, from the US Treasury, give it to weapons manufacturers um, and keep the military uh, industrial complex well-funded. A lot of people are profiting from that. Some of that uh technology that that uh uh research into new technologies um, it gets publicly funded then it makes its way from pure research institutions that are getting pentagon grants uh it trickles down into private corporations who then are able to come up with commercial applications for it and then they go and sell it back to the people who funded it in the first place and say thanks very much for all those research dollars now here Spend a thousand dollars and buy a new iPhone. Um, so the the US, the U.S. economy since World War Two has largely been driven by a couple of things that we've uncovered over the years. Uh, one is military spending, and the other is uh, kickbacks from Saudi Arabia in return for basically um, steadfast support of uh, the world's worst uh, uh, brutal theocracy uh, and getting them to spend their oil dollars in the US. Um, But anyway, back to uh, HVPs, not HPVs. Um, In my notes uh, here, uh, I've got lots of people calling them HPVs, but they're actually HVPs. Um, It's basically a flying hypersonic spike that's launched... Um, and and uh, in, in a similar sort of sense, but not by electromagnetic. But again, these go really, really fast. Um, they can go from over 30 to 100 miles, depending on what it's fired out of. Um, and basically these things, uh, again, fly very, very fast. They're very, very quiet. You wouldn't hear them coming. They would just, uh, you know, slam into you all of a sudden. You, right. could, you could have a hundred yeah. of these things just slam into an enemy um, within. Okay, so if you're doing uh, three kilometers a second and your enemy is two hundred kilometers away, 
Um, it means you're getting there in two hundred by three. Okay, maths isn't my strong point at this hour of the morning. <laughs> in sixty six seconds, right? You could fire one of these things from a couple of hundred kilometers away. It's completely yeah. quiet because it doesn't have any uh, propellant on it. It it does break the sound barrier, so maybe you'd get a sonic boom. But um, you go, what was it'd that? Probably be too late. Yeah, boom. It'd be too late. Yeah, you got a minute. Yeah. Um, there's also some talk that they they might be able to guide them, both these oh, wow. HVPs as well as the um, railgun projectiles. Not really sure how that would work. Yeah, it's going Had, so fast. They're talking about the idea to guide something, but you, you need some propellant in it to guide it. I mean, how do you guide something midair? How do you get it to change trajectory? Right. Maybe maybe big space magnets that can... Pull. Or, or fins or... Hell, I don't know. Gy- gyro... I, I have no idea. But that's but the fact that they could maybe, maybe turn them or whatever, it makes them obviously even more deadly and dangerous. And... Uh, yeah, you know, I read there's some talk that you'd be able to use drones um, closer to your enemy that are tracking their location, and then you'd be able to send that uh, location and trajectory information to the gun that launches the HVP or the, ah, the rail gun, and it, right. you know you could update its uh, trajectory, but. I don't know, man. Like it, it's just this amount of money being spent in developing these new yes. weapons and new technologies. Um, so, I guess from an America's American perspective, they would say, "Well, if China's building it, we need to build it too, um, or else we'll, we're, yeah. we're facing attack from China." But um, I don't know, man. I, I yeah, I wonder if China are developing their own, uh, or how much of the technology they're getting from. America. Are there any laws in yeah. place that would prevent American weapons manufacturers from selling this technology to China? Uh, it's so cutting edge. I would like to think someone's put a precaution in place. But as we've spe- um, as we've said so many times before, since money is the number one priority, I wouldn't be too surprised if there were no um, breaks or, or holds on something like this, because everybody's out to make as much money as they can, as fast as they can. Well, you know, I think the the general um, problem with selling or buying arms from a country that's a potential enemy uh, is yeah. that you you would. When has that ever happened? Name one time <laughs> the United States has sold weapons to someone. No, I'm just joking. Never mind. I think when the U.S. sells weapons uh, to people who are potentially going to be enemies, they're usually selling old, outdated weapons. And I'm pretty sure they would all have uh, some sort of uh, backdoor hack to them. Like if, if, if China was buying weapons from the United States, they would be worried, I'm sure, that the U.S. were building in backdoor um, yeah tools into them so they could hack them and vice versa the u.s would be worried about buying weapons from china for the same reason um so i guess china are probably developing these themselves i don't know if american uh weapons manufacturers are going to be profiting from china's weapons ramp up i believe china and the soviet union uh, former soviet union i think we call it just russia now so when are we going to right. go back to just calling it the soviet union again i well, like that trump better. is bringing that trump is bringing it back did you see that press conference? Which no. might get in. Oh, he he um 
he, I don't, I, I, there are no words, but basically mm-hmm. he just was just going from one topic to the other. And he said, uh, Russia, the Soviet Union, when it was the Soviet Union, was going into Afghanistan and was oh. Afgh- I think it was Afghanistan. Yeah, that. And he just yeah. kept going on and on. So, um, no, well, so he, I think he's trying to bring it back. We should talk about that. Uh, that's he's right. Yeah. The, yeah. I was going to bring that up later, but yeah. Well, uh, let's talk about that. Now, I've seen and I've gotten gotten involved in some debates with David Markham and people like this on Facebook. My understanding is that what Trump said about that is actually correct. Now, I'm, parts of it were yes. I'm not an expert. You may know more about this than me, but I, um, well, I know more about uh, Afghanistan than pretty much anybody, Ray. Um, right. Let's just get that out there. Um, Afghanistan genius. Yeah, yeah. I'm, I'm a stable Afghanistan genius. <laughs> I, I read Charlie Wilson's War um, a long time ago, and I read Tim Weiner's um, book on the history of the CIA. Here's my understanding. Okay. My understanding is there was um, uh, some civil unrest in Afghanistan. There was the, the government at the time, we're talking 1979, the government at the time was uh, pro Soviet Union. I think there'd been a bit of a, a, a coup d'etat earlier on, and a, and a pro-Soviet government had installed itself. There was there was uh, 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 somebody got assassinated there. A couple of people got assassinated. Right. Um, there was trouble from Islamic fundamentalist uh, uh, um, jihadists there, uh, the mm-hmm. Mujahideen. Um, and so the you the the Afghani government uh, asked the Soviet Union for support uh, to to help them put down these this, this this civil war that was brewing in the country, which is an entirely legitimate thing for the Afghanistan government to do. The Afghan government to do. They can invite anybody they want. Right. Right. Uh, now we can say you, you can argue over whether or not the the Afghani government was a legitimate government, etc. That's a yeah. that's a fine conversation. But they were the government. They invited the Soviet Union to come in and and help support them. The same way Bashar al-Assad in Syria had invited the Soviets to come in and support him to put down ISIS. Very similar scenario. Um, and, and and the rebellion that's been happening in his country. So um, while the Soviets were, were getting ready to do that, I think they sent in some small forces originally, but before they went in with uh, 100,000 or a couple hundred thousand people, um, the US, uh, under Carter's administration via the CIA, started actively supporting the Mujahideen in Afghanistan mm-hmm. with funding... I think with a little bit later on, it, they ramped it up and they were providing a lot more sort of weapons and training and that kind of stuff. But right. very early on, I think very early on uh, in this whole deal, before the Soviets invaded Afghanistan en masse, and this is the thing, I think American propaganda over the last 30 years has said that, well, has positioned it that the Soviets invaded Afghanistan right. and then right. America jumped into support Afghanistan against a Soviet invasion. But that's not... My reading of it is... And, and, I, and I checked this up. I pulled out Tim Weiner's book again uh, in the last few days, and I pulled up Charlie Wilson's war. Um, Charlie Wilson was the American congressman um, who sort of uh, ramped up the US's involvement in this. Um, my understanding is 
Afghanistan's government asked the Soviets to help them put down a civil war, what we were, you know, uh, 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 terrorism basically in their in their country. Right. And then the U.S. jumped in almost immediately to support the terrorists. And that mm-hmm. because Freedom they fighters, because they you're trying to say, yeah, because the U.S. saw it as <laughs> an opportunity. There's quotes from people like Zbigniew Brzezinski, um, who was Carter's um, secretary of defense. Is that right? Was that Brzezinski's title at the time? Sounds right. Um, Brzezinski. He was or you are uh, national uh, security <laughs> advisor. Sorry, that was his uh, term. He's yeah. still on the cabinet. Yeah, um, they saw it. There's quotes from him at the time. They saw it as an opportunity to uh, uh, help mire down the Soviet Union in their own Vietnam, as as, as it's usually right. called. But that's the timeline of events. Now, that's based on Tim Weiner's book about the CIA and uh, the author, whoever wrote George Creel, the third, who was a award-winning CBS journalist. Tim Weiner was a Pulitzer Prize-winning journalist. Uh, George Creel III, who wrote Charlie Wilson's War, was, I think, a, an award-winning CBS journalist. Um, that is the timeline of events that they wrote about. Now, um, people like Markham and everyone were getting up in my face saying, no, that's Putin's revisionist, Trump's revisionist <laughs> history on the whole thing. You're just buying Putin's right. propaganda. I'm going, hold on, these fucking books were written 20 years ago, man. What are you talking about, yeah. revisionist history? Now, have you looked into this? Do you, have a, do you have a different understanding in terms of the timeline than what I just articulated? No, I mean, I know more about when the Americans were bringing in the uh, the, the, the missiles and uh, the anti-tank weapons and training those guys how to take out the Russian tanks, which caused a lot of uh, uh, casualties. But that's the part that I know about more. But I, but I don't think you're wrong in anything you just said. I think that's pretty much how it really happened. But that's certainly not what I was taught in high school. Yeah. And um, so I don't know if anyone out there listening can... Show me where that timeline is wrong. Uh, please, please do so. But um, yeah. Markham, you know, just started flying off the handle. Well, you know. And, yeah. yeah. Um, and I was like, dude, like, when you're ready to talk facts, let me know. Otherwise, just, you know, <laughs> shut the fuck up. <laughs> Why do you insult me so much? He said. I'm like, dude, you know, you, you, you listen to yourself. Um, yeah. Anywho. Um, Keep like that's the facts as I understand it about Afghanistan and uh, the Soviet Union in the timeline. Yeah. Anyway, did you want to do any more about the um, weaponized warts, or uh, should we move on? Uh, yeah, no, it's just something to keep an eye on. Obviously, um, the information we get out of there, uh, China is probably old because I think they were actually working on this and having some level of success a couple of years ago. So. Again, it's, I think that the pace of war, this is like the difference between World War One and World War Two. The pace of war is about to go up another notch. Everybody adjusts to it. But hopefully, again, as long as the two sides are talking to each other and, and have diplomatic relations and don't do anything stupid, it'll be just another weapon that hopefully remains unused. Mm. Hopefully. Mm. Mm. Like nuclear weapons. Mm. Okay. Um, where are we at? Um, what do you want to talk about next? Um, do you want to talk about Brazil? Do you want to talk about... You, 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 do, do, you, you just start talking about something you want to talk about. 
Okay. Now, um, the um, NBC journalist who retired recently and wrote up his, um, I don't know if you want to call it an explanation, or he basically wrote up a letter about some of the reasons why he was quitting William M. Arkin. Now, I'm not going to profess to know. I like I, I haven't followed this guy for years. I know the name. I've seen the face. I'm sure I've read stuff. But I was, I was surprised by some of the stuff uh, that was in his. I'll just, I'm just going to call it an exit interview or an exit letter. He's been working for NBC uh, Network for over 30 years, and he's a civilian military. Um, consultant specialist um, correspondent. I'm not sure exactly what the the words are, but but some some parts of his um, exit interview were uh, uh, letter were staggering to me. He basically accuses both sides: Democrats, Republicans, conservatives, liberals. It, it doesn't really matter who you are. He was basically going after NBC, but he says other networks do it as well. About everybody in this, a lot of people in this country seem to be, and you've mentioned this time and time again, pro-war. Um, pro uh, inc- um, taking the right steps and making the right decisions in order to keep tensions up in the air to keep Americans in places they probably shouldn't be. And uh, so when he says when he kind of agrees with Trump about getting out of Syria, that shocked me and maybe it shouldn't have. Mm-hmm. Why did that shock you? Because um, well, let's put it this way: so you know, since uh, mid late nineteen forties, as you and I have covered on the Cold War, America. The part we've gotten in the Cold War is America has just begun to set up. It's basically it's, it's there's an American economic block. It's the largest the world has ever seen, and as we know, it's going to get a lot bigger. And a couple of years go by, maybe not really even a couple of years, and there's going to be in a giant American military block. Now, the reason we have that is to cover the economic block, which is nothing new that's been done for thousands of years. It's just not on this scale. And this has to do with Syria. This has to do with Mr. Arkin, what he said in his thing. This has to do with uh, General Mad Dog Mattis um, quitting over this. And I wanted to get your sense on this because the United States, in some ways, has been the world's policeman. I mean, and I'm sure you've seen charts about you can pick all the countries in the Western Hemisphere, including China, China and Russia, and see how much they spend on military compared to the United States, where we spend on military. And even if you add all those together, I think America is probably, the United States is probably even more. But the point is, it's that's been the status quo for so long. I don't think that too many people can step back or have the courage to step back and say, well, does America still need to be this policeman, this global policeman with their military? Do we need to have bases all over the place? I mean, are other countries able and or willing to step up and take care of their own regions? I mean, is it time for a change? Because when, when Trump says we're getting out of Syria, people went ape shit. The general, the uh, the general retired, and now Trump is starting to walk it back. Say, well, we're going to get out. It's just a matter of when. We're going to slow things down, but we got to get out. And in that news conference, he said, Syria is nothing more than sand and death. And it's not that he's wrong. It doesn't have a ton of oil, which you and I've covered when we talked about Syria. But it's what America does. It's what everybody expects us to do to interject. But I just want to know: is it does it always have to be that? Does it always have to be that way? Is America always going to be the world's policeman? 
Or is everybody going to go crazy when some American leader, whether it's Trump or somebody down the road, goes, you know, maybe it's time we pull back from having these commitments all over the planet. And I, I just found what Mr. Arkin wrote very fascinating by going, yeah, why in the fuck are we in Syria? What's going on? Are we going to trust Turkey? I mean, it's going to get ugly between Turkey and the Kurds if we pull out because we're going to, what, trust Turkey not to attack the Kurds, their longtime enemy. I mean, things can unravel, but who's to say it's America's job to take care of all of this thing? And I can imagine the very first thing you'll say, Cam, and you're not wrong, is that there are those in America who want it to stay the way because it keeps the industrial uh, complex um, fed. It keeps weapons being produced. We keep praising the military. We keep getting young kids to volunteer and it keeps the machine going and it keeps making the right type of people a lot of money. And so I just, but I just, again, this, this, this exit letter of his really shook me up about going, cause he admits, he goes, look, Trump is a fool. Trump is incompetent, but he's not wrong about certain things like why are we in Syria? Why do we have to lead? Why is everybody pro-military? Why is everybody encouraging America to keep making the wrong decisions where American lives are lost and millions or billions of dollars are always being spent and we're just getting ready for the next war or next local uh, conflict where everybody's expecting us to to, to lead the way? Hmm. Well, let's talk a little bit about this guy, uh, William Arkin, before we get into some of the questions mm-hmm. that he raises. Now, um, his background, as you indicated, is in military intelligence. Um, mm-hmm. He's been involved in national security work for over 40 years. Um, in more recent years, he's been a journalist. He's, he's written stories that have appeared in the front pages of the Washington Post, New York Times, LA Times. And as you say, he's been an on-air military analyst for NBC for uh, decades. And he's one of the few on-air military analysts who's not a retired general or an admiral. Right. Obviously, right. Uh, when you have people like that on, they have a lot of biases, a lot of relationships sure. uh, in, in the community. Usually, when you're a retired general, what do you do for a living? You go and work for a weapons right. manufacturer or, or, right. or private military contractor of some form um, who will profit from the military-industrial complex. Um, so this guy's been around a long time, and basically his exit letter... Uh, his departure letter from NBC criticizes the permanent war standing of the United States, as you said. I'll, I'll just read an excerpt here. The full thing is quite long. But here's an excerpt. Um, it was clear that NBC, like the rest of the news media, could no longer keep up with the world. Added to that was the intellectual challenge of how to report our new kind of wars when there were no real fronts and no actual measures of success. To me, there is also a larger problem. Though they produce nothing that resembles actual safety and security, the national security leaders and generals we have are allowed to do their thing unmolested. Despite being at war, no great wartime leaders or visionaries are emerging. There is not a soul in Washington who can say that they have won or stopped any conflict. And though, though, and though there might be the beloved perfumed princes in the form of the Petraeuses and the Wes Clarks or the so-called warrior monks like Madison McMaster, we've had more than a generation of national security leaders who sadly and fraudulently have done little of consequence. And yet we and others embrace them. 
even the highly partisan formers who masquerade as analysts, we do so ignoring the empirical truth of what they have wrought. There is not one country in the Middle East that is safer today than it was 18 years ago. Indeed, the world becomes ever more polarized and dangerous. As perpetual war has become accepted as a given in our lives, I'm proud to say that I've never deviated in my argument at NBC or at my newspaper gigs that terrorists will never be defeated until we better understand why they are driven to fighting. And I have maintained my central view that air power, in its broader sense, including space and cyber, is not just the future, but the enabler and the tool of war today. Mm. So let's let me go back and talk just a little bit about perpetual war because I, I think he's right. I think that's where the US is and where um, the the military industrial complex want the whole world to be. This whole idea of perpetual war as becoming the norm is something right. that surprisingly to me, like when Trump announced he was pulling out of Syria. Um, mm-hmm. uh, even my friends online who are Democrats lost their shit. Um, right. th- these are people who are effectively arguing that they should be that the US should be staying in Syria. Now, the United States shouldn't be in Syria in the first place. We did what twenty five episodes on Syria, um, mm-hmm. as I recall from that. Uh, they were never invited by Bashar al-Assad or his government to go into Syria. They're, they're, mm-hmm. Why are they in Syria at all? Um, the UN didn't give them permission to go into Syria, as I recall. Do you recall anything differently? Was there a Security Council uh, permission for them to enter the, the Syria? No, the closest I could come was maybe some of the Kurd tribes or, or something, but even that's a guess. And does that really count? Well, not really. I mean, um, and I don't even think there's been a declaration of war between the United States and Syria. Um, but basically, you know, the whole point, I get sick of having to explain this, particularly to fucking Democrats, but the whole point of the United Nations and the Security Council, when Roosevelt and Churchill and Stalin and others established it in 1945 before Roosevelt's death was to create some rules of international engagement, um, mostly around trying to prevent conflicts like World War II. And all of the countries that have signed the UN Charter have signed up to abiding by these rules. Now, some of these articles basically state very clearly that you can't just send armed forces into a country unless you're authorized to do that by the Security Council or uh, if that country invites you to send forces in. Like, as we said earlier, Afghanistan invited the Soviet Union in in 79 and uh, Syria invited the Soviet Union in, uh, Russia in. Fuck, I wish they'd just keep calling it the Soviet Union. It's so confusing. <laughs> so um, in the last few years with regards to the civil war going on there. Um, there are rules, but the the US, and look, this is true of, of all the major players now, right? I'm not just bagging on the US, but it is true with the US. They, they just ignore the rules when it's convenient. Um, they, they'll use the rules to criticize other nations, like when right. the Soviet, fuck, when Russia uh, 
went into the <laughs> Ukraine. Uh, oh, whenever yeah. that was into Georgia, Ukraine, like fucking twenty twelve. Uh, was it that long ago? Shit, I think so. Um, I thought it was longer than that actually. But anyway, when that happened, um, everyone's going, "That's illegal." But then the U.S. sends troops into Syria, and no one bats an eyelid in, in the U.S., including the Democrats. They're like, yeah, well, you know, so, yeah. so yeah, it's fine. It's this normalization. Like, and I don't care. Look, Trump's a fucking moron, obviously. Um, but that doesn't mean that he's not right like a broken clock twice a day. I mean, the, the U.S. should not be in Syria uh, legally. Now, okay, we can have a conversation about the, the, the moralities of it. Um, okay, you want to take a side in the civil war? Okay, fine, I get that. Uh, do I do I personally uh, empathise with the the rebels as opposed to the the government in Syria? Yeah, probably. I think um, I, I can I can empathise with the position of of the rebels and the people. But as we explored in detail on 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 our series, you know, if the rebels took over, are they going to be any better? Uh, than the Assads. I mean, the Assads have been brutal, yes, particularly to people who are trying to destabilize the country. But uh, if you get a, a Sunni fundamentalist Wahhabist regime that's a puppet of Saudi Arabia, which is basically what's happening there, are they going to be any better? Take a look at Saudi Arabia. Are they Do they treat their people mm. any better than uh, the Syrians? Uh, I don't think so. I, I think they're right. brutal. Look at the war that they're waging in Yemen. Are they? Do they have moral uh, superiority? They don't. So anyway, where am I going with that? Yeah, just the idea of perpetual war that even people supposedly on the left uh, are defending. Well, we need to be in there. We need to be in Afghanistan. We need to be in Iraq. Yeah, we probably need to attack Iran, we we you know we we probably need to build weapons to stave off China. Uh, it's just it's the norm on both sides, and you don't really see, at least I'm not aware of much debate. Many people asking these questions um, outside of Trump. So and I hate to yeah. say it, but I actually agree with Trump on this. Well, I mean, yeah, yeah, because this is the way it's been for seventy years. I think people. Especially if you're a senator or, or a congressperson in your in your 60s or your 70s, you probably can't even think any differently. And so you got some people who, um, like McCain and Bush before he died, who were, were trashing Trump and he was talking about not being a the, you know the leader of the free world or whatever. I just don't these, think these people can think any in a different way. But but like you were saying, it, but it's that kind of thinking that keeps us involved in so many places we either should not be or we don't have to be. And it keeps the conflict going. Um, I just want to read a little bit from Arkin's letter because he addresses a lot of this. He says, I'm alarmed how quick NBC is to mechanically argue the contrary, to be in favor of policies that just spell more conflict and more war. Really? We shouldn't get out of Syria? We shouldn't go for the bold move of denuclearizing the Korean Peninsula? Even on Russia, though we should be concerned about the brittleness of our democracy, that it is so vulnerable to manipulation. Do we really yearn for the Cold War? And don't even get me started with the FBI. What? We now lionize this historically destructive institution. So this guy just put it all out there, and he's not wrong, but Troy. But ever since two thousand one, um, we we I don't know I don't know if America is still 
we have a chip on our shoulder or it was just an opportunity to to keep the uh, industrial military complex going. But it has been pretty much revved up since then. And I'm sure a lot of fortunes have been made and nobody wants to kill the golden goose. Yeah, I think you're right. I mean, if you look at the timeline um, between 1946 and 1991, um, the Cold War was the unquestionable justification for the military industrial complex in the US. Um, And, you know, as I've explained in detail uh, in our Cold War series, and I'm sure I've touched on this series, there are hundreds of thousands of businesses in the United States that profit from the military Mm. industrial complex. And then the Cold War ended technically, officially, with the collapse of the Soviet Union in 91. And it got harder and harder to justify military spending. Um, you had the, the Clinton administration, which is, as we both know, it was sort of a center-right administration anyway. They got involved in uh, bombing Iraq. They got involved in... Um, uh, Kosovo, Croatia, Mogadishu, Mogadishu, a few places like that. So they they kept up their end of the bargain. But it was getting harder and harder to sell it to the American people, being on a constant war footing, a perpetual war footing, where no one could question massive Pentagon budgets. They don't, you know, the the people who are getting hold of that money don't want it to even be be questionable, right? So then... You know, thankfully for those people, um, 9-11 happened. And uh, ever since then, they have been able to just increase their military budgets uh, under first the Bush administration, then the Obama administration, and now, of course, the Trump administration. And you just don't hear a lot of uh, um, debate about it in the U.S., at least. And, of course, we have to keep in mind that the mainstream media are part of that military-industrial complex. They profit from war in a number of ways. Um, War uh, uh, is a great way to increase readership or, or television viewership or radio listenership. Whenever there's an attack or a threat or, or terrorist uh, uh, attacks, uh, circulation, viewership spikes. When, when mm-hmm. they spikes, you can sell more advertising and you can sell advertising at a higher rate. So there is profit to be had in war if you're a media company. Secondly, we know that most of your mainstream media companies in the US are part of conglomerates. Those conglomerates either directly or indirectly have interests in uh, the military industrial complex. They have shared uh, shareholders. They have shared directors. They have shared owners. Um, they, They all profit from that. And of course, also, even if they don't have a direct relationship, if Company X is uh, profits from the military-industrial complex, that means they have more money to spend on advertising in your media uh, company. So mm. what's good for mm-hmm. them is good for you. So there are conjoined yep. interests between all of these different players. Um, nobody profits from a decrease in military spending in the US, except the people, who because you'd actually have more money then to spend on <laughs> healthcare. <laughs> Uh, infrastructure, uh, yeah. raising your education standards, um, all that kind of stuff. Um, you know, in, in taking care of, of people in poverty, um, all that kind of stuff. So, 
and I, I would like to contrast everything that you just said, and I apologize, I don't have the names in front of me, but last week, two American service uh, men died. Um, one was in his 20s, and the other one was 19 years old. He was 19 years old, just deployed over there. I'm not, I don't know any of the details, but the point is he's now dead. He hasn't even started his life, and, and now it's gone because, quite frankly, people want to make money. Certain People in power want to make money. So some 19-year-old, he won't be the last, but his life is over before he even started. <sighs> well, he signed up for it, man. He, he did, but but it's a, a part of the the whole program. The process was we revere those people. I mean, you see all the emotional commercials when daddy or mommy comes home and they're hiding behind a door, they're hiding in a present and the kids start screaming because mommy and daddy come out. It's all, it's all a bill of goods that they're being sold. Having an army and a Navy and an air force for self-defense is one thing, but kind of what's going on in the middle East and other parts of the world that is not self-defense. And we should bring those people home, but yeah, I'll just leave it there. Let's get off of military yeah. and talk about fusion power. Yes, let's end on a positive note. Yeah, this, I mean, it's, there's this old joke that fusion is the energy source of the future and it always will be because people have been talking about it for decades, <laughs> since the 50s, since, mm-hmm. you know, we, we, we talked about it when we were talking about the development of the atom bomb. Yes. But... It never seems to be close to a reality. Now, for people who uh, uh, don't really uh, 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 pay much attention to physics, fortunately, um, nobody knows more about <laughs> nuclear physics than I do. So uh, let me let me give you a, 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 the bit of a breakdown. Thank God you're here. I, yeah. that's, that's what I say all the time too. Um, nobody knows more about God than I do. So, which is why you did a film. That's right. Uh, fusion. So what is fusion? Fission and fusion. Fission is where you break apart atoms to create to release the energy that's binding together the subatomic particles. Fusion is where you slam particles together to form different particles. That process also gives off massive amounts of energy. Now, fusion definitely works. We see it every day. The sun operates by nuclear fusion. They blast the sun, the sun and stars, slam hydrogen atoms together using the, the intense gravity that's in the core of a star. And that process uh, transforms hydrogen into helium and releases cosmic amounts of energy that powers uh, our solar system. Now, trying to create that in uh, a laboratory environment is inordinately difficult. They're basically, to create fusion energy, we need to create a mini sun. Mm. Uh, you're trying to create a, a, an ionized gas, which is called plasma. And uh, the way that they do that is typically by trying to create an ultra powerful magnetic field using a thing called a tokamak. A tokamak. <clears throat> is a device in the shape of a torus that uses a powerful magnetic field to confine and heat up plasma, ionized gases. Um, hot ionized gases are plasma. Now, a torus is basically a donut. It's the uh, mathematical name for a donut. So imagine a really, really big 
Homer Simpson sized donut <laughs> that uh, is magnetized and Ooh, is is donut. heating up gas in the middle to right. where it uh, becomes super super hot. Now there are lots of benefits uh, if we can get fusion to work. I mean, it, it could be the answer to a lot of our energy problems. It could mean the end of fossil fuels. Benefit right. of the benefit of fusion and the, the like. The dream of fusion has always been that once you can get it up and running and you can contain mm. that amount of heat, it's self-sustaining and tech, uh, you know very very oh. cheap to run. Very very cheap. Right. Once you get it going. Once you build it and get it going, yeah. Doesn't okay. doesn't give off much in the way of... Um, uh, 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 Greenhouse gases. Anything. What's the what's, what's an overall word for that? Doesn't give off... Um, um, waste. Waste. Um, yeah, yeah, that's what waste? I'm thinking of. Waste products. Okay. Yeah, right. A little bit of waste product, but not much, and it's easily dealt with. But, but it's basically clean... Energy and massive amount of energy, safe, clean uh, nuclear energy. But no one's ever been able to figure out how to do it. But there is a guy called Dennis White, who's a professor at MIT's Plasma Science and Fusion Center. He says, we are so close to getting this right now. Mm. It's just the science is pretty much nutted out. It's just a case of solving some engineering problems and um, he's got a new company that is working on this that's being funded by an Italian oil company and some private investors like Bill Gates and Jeff Bezos they've ah. new company's called Commonwealth Fusion Systems they've put about 75 million into it for this this first round this right. startup intends to have demonstrable working fusion by 2025. That's only six years away. Damn. Yeah. No, I guess, so what? No oil, we wouldn't need... uh, No oil, we wouldn't need nuclear uh, power anymore. We would have this. It would be clean. It would be cheap. I mean, it would change the world as we know it. Well, I think these, you know, these things are still going to cost money to build. Um, They're still going to, you know, require investment uh, and there'll be time to even once they work out the engineering to go and build one of these things I don't know how many years it would take to build working fusion plants around uh, right. all of our countries to power different areas but um, you know it gives us a roadmap for replacing fossil fuels with something other than traditional nuclear now the obviously the challenge with traditional nuclear is it's very safe in theory, if mm-hmm. um, you know it's being operated at a very high standard, right? right. Um, there, there are waste products that are a bit of a problem. You end up with these irradiated rods that you need to get rid of, and mm. how and where you do that is kind of tricky. Um, but uh, I, I say we just bury them at Mar-a-Lago. That's my take on yeah. it. Yeah. You know, <laughs> Drop them under the ground. I have a problem with that. Yeah. Um, but I believe that the the theory behind these fusion plants is you're not going to have those problems. Um, they they they're not going to uh, because you're not dealing with irradiated fuel rods um, like fission has. Fission has waste products. Fusion, you're just talking mm-hmm. about 
creating really, really hot gas. Okay, so there's no um, problems oh, with irradiated gotcha. waste products at the end of it. You're just yeah. heating up, heating up this gas, making a mini sun. I, I just want to ask real quick: when you were reading through the article, did you get a deja vu moment, like when the when they were building the atomic atomic bomb? I mean, basically it came down to they had to invent materials and they had to invent processes that weren't invented yet because they were literally making stuff of as, as they went. And as you go through this article, oh, there's this problem and some MIT student or team comes up with an idea. And I just really enjoyed that, this process where that you just get rid of the bottleneck and then you move on to the next bottleneck. And you're right, it's going to take them a while. But once they get the first one up and running that's producing power, then it's just a matter of making it smaller and more efficient and I think that would that process will probably go faster than what a lot of people think because there's a lot of brilliant people and there's a lot of people throwing tons of money at this. It's just getting that first one up and running. But I certainly think we'll see benefits from it before we we die, even considering how much limoncello I drink. This is going to be this is going to be amazing. Do you want to know the big difference between this and building the bomb, the Manhattan Project? What? Tell me. Uh, this isn't getting unlimited military spending on it. Ah, um, uh, two billion. Well, yeah, yeah, the U.S. spent two billion building the bomb, and that was in 1940s dollars. <laughs> uh, <laughs> these guys had their had their government funding uh, taken away from them a couple of yes. years ago. What the hell? Yeah, yeah. But it made them more creative and inventive. And eventually, people like Bill Gates, Jeff Bezos, who, who catches a lot of slack, or for the way, uh, supposedly the way his Amazon employees are treated, but they're throwing tons of money at this. And of course, I guess their, their goal is to make even more money from these investments. But still, the world will benefit from this once this is up and running. Mm. Well, let's hope. Um, now, it's not just uh, Dennis White's group that are working on this. There are at least 10 other startups that are trying various approaches mm-hmm. to fusion power. And basically, all of them are saying it's no longer a, a science experiment. They understand right. the theory. Now, it's just a matter of how do you contain these uh, plasma fields. Um, by the way, I love this. MIT's Tokamak is sitting in a former Nabisco cookie warehouse. They... <laughs> Where better to build a giant donut, nuclear donut, than in a former cookie warehouse? With a bunch of elves as supervisors. Yeah, this is going to work out just fine. Yeah. Is that a Nabisco <laughs> thing? Elves? Yeah. They okay. have elves in the uh, in the tree. Yeah. Anyway. Right. Good to know. Yeah. Um, uh, just FYI, the uh, one, one of the last runs that they did on MIT's Tokamak uh, they created a new record for plasma pressure hitting 35 million degrees Celsius. Good God. It's amazing. I mean, I'm glad we ended on this because this is a very positive thing. It shows human ingenuity. The government fucks with them by cutting their funding. And they literally have to think up new ways to, to tackle problems. And it's, and some of it was um, very kind of old school solutions using some kind of modified tape. But again, uh, humans have a way of just persevering, and especially if it's something you're passionate about. And it looks like, you know, one day we could all benefit from some of these people just absolutely refusing to give up and i say good for them yeah 
All right, well, that's all the time. The other stories we didn't get to today, um, but just to get them on people's radar, um, Jair Bolsonaro is the new uh, president in Brazil. Um, Far-right fascist uh, president uh, has just come to power there. I was going to give a bit of a background on what's happening in Brazil, but basically take Trump and uh, make him... Give him a tan. And what? Give him a real tan, not a fake tan. I was just going to say, yeah, make him a couple of times worse. You've got Bolsonaro. Um, Yeah. We're, you know, we're just seeing the rise again of the far right. There were neo-Nazi protests happening in, or, 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 or neo-Nazi uh, rally happening in Melbourne over the weekend. Um, oh, this, my God. This guy um, is basically a, a military dictator who's come to power now in Brazil um, after the, fourth the largest. Brazilian economy has been collapsed with the support of the United States. Uh, mm-hmm. A number of like fake, uh, quasi-fake corruption inquiries into the leftist government that was in power for about ten years. Um, the other story we're going to talk about we didn't get to El Chapo's trial. Uh, the son yeah. of the current Sinaloa cartel um, uh, is, has been Sang like a bird. He's been out uh, talking in the trial. He said that his father's bribery budget is often a million dollars a month. And he said oh. that an army general who works in the Mexican Defense Department is getting a monthly stipend of $50,000 from the cartel. Jeez. He said that his father routinely bribed a military officer who once served as the personal guard for the president of Mexico, Vincente Fox. We've mentioned that before <laughs> on the trial. But the big news that came out this week is that this guy, Vincente Zambada Niebla, uh, who's the son of the current leader of the cartel, According to his lawyers, he's been working secretly as a spy for the DEA for years. In an ex- and, and the deal he had with the DEA was that he would give them information about his rivals in exchange for them allowing him to run the cartel freely. How was that helpful? Now, the DEA have... DEA have denied this. They do acknowledge that they've had meetings with him, but they've denied that there was any kind of quid pro quo agreement. He just we met with us. He just met but, with us. Uh, and um, yeah. I mean, we knew he was running a drug cartel, but <laughs> we chose not to do anything yeah. about it. Wasn't a deal. Yeah. You, yeah. Show me where we've got that in writing. Um, if, <laughs> or a secret handshake. If the. Hey. Yeah. Yeah. No, no, I'm sorry. Go ahead. No. I was just going to say, I know we're way over time, but please give me three minutes of your time and tell me about the latest, if you want, the Julian Assange, Assange uh, situation going on. Well, I just find that fascinating. That was the other story I, I wanted to cover, and we'll just do it briefly because, as you say, we're out of time. But um, as everyone knows, Julian Assange has been holed up in the Ecuadorian um, embassy in London for six years, going on seven years, I think. Um, under the former president, Rafael Correa, he was a leftist president of, of Ecuador who, who gave Julian asylum. Um now, there was an election in Ecuador last year, uh, a guy from the right, uh, Lenin Moreno. Unfortunately, his name is Lenin. You'd think with a name like Lenin, he'd be a good guy, but 
He's uh, he is be- he he cut off Julian Assange's uh, internet access last year, um, but stories have started to emerge about um, Moreno uh, uh, basically turning up the heat on Assange, looking for a justification mm-hmm. to get rid of his asylum. Now, according to Rafael Correa, the former president. Um, he tweeted uh, a couple of days ago an, an image of a letter that he received from Ecuador's state Contr- comptroller general notifying mm-hmm. him that they're going to be holding an investigation into Assange's asylum. Um, now, apparently, they're running an audit to determine whether the procedures for granting asylum were carried out in accordance with national and international law. <clears throat> they're looking for a legal justification to kick him out of the embassy that won't you know bring about lots of international um, approbation in the United Nations Human Rights Council and all that right. kind of stuff. But what's going on underneath here, uh, I think it's worth understanding. So the Ecuadorian economy is struggling, to put it mildly. Low, mm-hmm. Lower oil prices, um, huge interest rates on international loans, and Moreno has been looking into sources of debt relief. He's been looking at the IMF uh, for a bailout. Mm-hmm. He's also looking at China and, and some other sources of getting loans to try and bail him out. Now, of course, all of these organizations, whether you're China or whether you're, you're the IMF, uh, have a quid pro quo, a bit like the DEA with the son of the cartel. They're not just going to give you money without getting something in return. What China wants, I mean, they probably want him to be part of their economic block, um, trading partners, stop doing business with the US, etc., cetera, etc. Cetera. Um, uh, what the US would want, and the IMF is basically controlled by the US to a large degree, um, the the IMF was probably going to want, because of US pressure for him to, among other things, they're going to want you know economic quid pro quos as well, but they're probably going to want him to kick out Assange so they can uh, uh, throw Assange in a tiny little black site um, somewhere, probably in Syria. They're like, listen, we pulled our troops out. Can we start using your torture rooms again like we did after 9-11? Um, Buddy. Now, uh, you know, the funny th- a couple of funny things I wanted to mention about this. Number one is that recently the U.S. media has been criticizing China for what it calls mm-hmm. debt diplomacy, basically saying that China uses debt diplomacy to financially trap poor countries. So they go into right. poor countries and say, look, we will give you money to bail you out, but we want to buy your oil cheap and we want to sell you this and we want to buy that. I'm like, fucking motherfuckers, what do you think the US has been doing since forever? <laughs> the US are the kings of debt diplomacy. And it's also yeah. worth pointing out that the government-owned oil firm, Petro Amazonas, this is the Ecuadorian firm, produces 80% of the country's oil, owes $3 billion in debts to contractors, including a lot of American firms like Schlumberger, the Texas-based oil firm. So, you know, there's a lot of people who want money here. But this whole the, the way the U.S. media is criticizing China for debt diplomacy is hysterical because that's basically what the U.S. has been doing forever. Yeah. Um, and if you want to read more about that, get that book... Um, uh, uh, economic hitman uh, by an American guy who actually did this for a living for decades. He would go into these 
poor third world countries or countries mm-hmm. struggling from debt and would basically um, manipulate them to the benefit of uh, the United States. Then he got out and wrote a book about it, Economic Hitman, worth a read. Um, the other thing that I thought was interesting is that your president, Mike Pence, paid a visit to Ecuador recently um, to sort of discuss tightening up Ecuador's economic and military ties with Washington as well as mm. Julian Assange's fate. But then, of course, last week, my personal friend, Rudy Giuliani, and no one knows more about Rudy Giuliani than I do, Ray, because um, I had a cigar with him about five years right. ago when he was in Brisbane, caught up, had a chat, yeah. um, <clears throat> got a selfie with Rudy G. Rudy uh, has been doing the rounds in the US media over the last week saying that Assange uh, is fine, that from his perspective as legal advisor to American President Donald Trump, Assange is in the clear. Um, and as he should be, again, say what you want about Rudy. Is he crazy? Yes. Is he right on this? Yes. And and, and here's Rudy's um, explanation. American publishers, media, news publishers, for decades have released top secret information. We can go back to the Pentagon Papers. Spielberg just made a fucking film that got nominated for Academy Awards for his movie starring Meryl Streep and and Tom Hanks, I think, about when the New York Times was publishing the Pentagon Papers leaked by Daniel Ellsberg, talking about how uh, the American government, the Pentagon and and, and, uh, um, Johnson and Nixon... Uh, were lying to the American people about uh, what was going on in Vietnam and the chances of winning and all that kind of stuff. So they did that. And then ever since then, they've published stuff that Assange leaked. American news publishers for decades have done this and no one has ever tried to prosecute a news publisher for leaking this kind of information. And yet again, Mm -hmm. I have people on the left like David Markham saying Assange is a fucking terrorist and he should be thrown in jail and he should be this and he should be that and he's right. blah, blah, blah. They say he's a traitor. I'm going, he's fucking Australian. I mean, like, <laughs> what? He's a news publisher. Um, and, and again, Rudy Giuliani's been saying this. It's absolutely outrageous that the US should be suggesting that there could be legal consequences for Assange for publishing top secret information because if you do that you have to throw the book at every news publisher that has done the same thing now of course when assange uh, via wikileaks leaked the uh, collateral damage video seven or eight years ago during the bush regime which showed oh it would have been no longer than seven or eight years ago then it was 10 years ago i can't remember exactly when that came out um, that showed uh, U.S. military laughing about shooting civilians in, mm-hmm. I want to say Iraq, might have been Afghanistan, but I think it was Iraq. Um, and he went after the Bush uh, regime. Uh, Democrats over there loved him, loved him. He was a fucking hero. Right. As soon as he then started leaking some of Hillary's dirty laundry, oh, they want him in jail. Um, you know, they just there's no there's no ethics there's no values there's no morals they're just like all over the place there's no standards anyway so that's what's going on with assange on one hand looks like moreno is under pressure from the u.s to get assange out if he wants an imf bailout on the other hand uh rudy giuliani is going no 
Now, is Rudy Giuliani just saying that so Assange will feel more comfortable to come out and then they'll get him? There's a lot of, you hear a lot of people say, oh, Assange is in Trump's camp. That's why he's never attacked attacked Trump. Um, And uh, he's working with them. Um, I, I personally don't believe Assange is working with anybody. I think he he yeah. works for himself. I think he will attack all sides. He's personally said he hasn't released anything damaging to Putin or Trump because no one's given it to him. He only can work with what he's given. Do you believe him? Do you not believe him? I don't know. I, I, I don't see any reason not to believe him unless you just have a grudge against him for something that he wrote against somebody you're a fan of. Um, right. But anyway, that's Assange's. That's the Assange news. That's all the time we've got. Um, we'll be back next week with more news. Thanks, buddy. Thank you.